Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Mum Talk, hosted by myself, Emma Jolin, mum to Amandine, who was born in September 2018. If you are new here on this podcast, I share my journey as a mum, from pregnancy to life with a baby, now toddler, sharing all the highs and all the lows. Not only am I joined by incredibly knowledgeable guests, some experts in their field, but also mums and dads sharing their experience of pregnancy and parenthood. As always, you can trust in mum talk to be honest real and informative and provide plenty of nod along and me too moments wherever you may be thank you for listening and enjoy being part of today's conversation nourish is a well-being app created by mums for mums offering bite-sized calm and well-being at your fingertips The app is an on-demand library of meditations, videos and quick reads across mindfulness, yoga nidra, psychology and much more, all tailored to the emotions and challenges we face as mums. It's a support team of well-being experts in your pocket who are all mums themselves who get it. Try Nourish to de-stress, restore and reboot and find more love, joy and calm in the chaos and pressures of modern mum life. Nourish was named App of the Day by Apple and is free to download and explore on iOS and Android. Check it out at thenourishapp.com. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mum Talk Series 9, Episode 2. This week I have the absolute pleasure of chatting to Leslie Gilchrist, co-founder and clinical director of My Expert Midwife. You may have seen I use their products all through pregnancy with Amandine and I am doing so again with baby number two. But today she joins us as a registered midwife. She has worked in some of the largest teaching hospitals in Europe and has extensive experience as a labour ward coordinator and community midwife. With over 16 years experience in bumps, births and babies, Leslie is an expert in pregnancy, childbirth and postnatal care. She specialises also in the effects and treatment of birth trauma. She is also a published author and has featured in the Channel 4 drama documentary One Born Every Minute. If you watch that, I don't watch it, I'm nervous to watch it, but if you watch it, she was on it. And as a midwife and mum of two, Leslie is extremely passionate about tackling pregnancy taboos and improving the experience of pregnancy and childbirth by empowering women with choices that will make a significant difference. And that is exactly what she joins us here today to do. We talk through preparing for birth and answering all of your questions. I have literally just spoken to her and this is going out for you guys on Wednesday and it's Tuesday today. So it is fresh off the breast. I wanted to get it to your ears because it is such a solid knowledgeable podcast Leslie shares so much and goes into so much detail that if anyone out there is pregnant like I am which I'm sure many of you are and you're expecting very very soon this is the podcast for you to listen to if you are a little bit anxious as to what's going to happen or what your choices may be so enjoy So let's start off by talking about preparing for birth. Um, And I know that we wanted to talk about uh, perineal perineal massage, uh, what it is and how to do it. I remember doing it with my first and absolutely hating it. And I'm not looking forward to doing it with my second. (laughs) Um, 
And also we'll talk about uh, preparing for a C-section and then maybe we can chat about how that varies for a, um, of course, a a normal hospital birth if you haven't um, asked for or you're not going in for an elective C-section. And then discuss a little bit about home birth as well, because that's certainly something that I'm very interested in. We're planning to have a home birth with my second, who is due in May. Um, so that'll be really interesting for me as well. So let's start off. Let's go straight into the perineum. <laughs> yeah. So how and why and what should we be doing? So we almost need to break this down into the people that it will actually benefit most. Yeah. So um, the reason, and this has come from years and years of research, you can back, go back to the 1980s actually, for research on perineal massage and the people that benefit most. So we know from that research that if it's your first time pregnant or you've maybe had a cesarean section before and this is the first time that you're planning to give birth vaginally, then doing perineal massage for sort of three to four times a week from 36 weeks of pregnancy or 34 weeks of pregnancy will actually reduce your risk or chance that you need episiotomy mm-hmm. during giving birth. And, and that's important because episiotomies have a higher rate of infection, have a higher rate of actually the wound breaking down. They take a longer to recover and they are sorer. So women do report that they're a little bit more painful. So from that point of view, it's your first baby or it's the first time that you plan to give birth vaginally. If you do perineal massage from 34 weeks of pregnancy, then it reduces your risk or your chance of needing uh, an episiotomy. Now, we give episiotomies because we're either really worried about the baby and we know that the baby needs to be born really quickly and we can reduce that time by about 20 minutes by doing an episiotomy. But that's really only for first-time mums because it's that additional 20 minutes of stretching of the perineum that um, that we can actually cut down on by doing an episiotomy. But you don't have that 20 minutes of stretching the perineum, really, with second, third, fourth, fifth babies. Right. So if you had a normal-sized baby vaginally at, uh, you know, at term gestation, so they're 7 to 42 or further on weeks than that, and um, you didn't have an episiotomy, so there's no scar tissue there, you maybe tore, then... There's not a great deal of evidence that it benefits you. But I think what's interesting to note is there's not really any evidence to say that it's harmful. And what it does do is it gets you to know your own female anatomy. So it gets you to understand your vulva, um, what's uncomfortable. Um, And I think as a midwife, certainly, I'm a great believer that, you know, as women, we should really understand your own anatomy and look Mm. at our anatomy and, and not be embarrassed or, you know, taboo about actually touching ourselves and knowing exactly what is where Mm. absolutely and you guys do a uh, wonderful um oil massage oil yes so that came about because interestingly you can use any old vegetable oil from your you know your cupboards so any sort of food grade vegetable oil is fine but the feedback that certainly i had as a midwife was it's bad enough that there aren't any, you know, there wasn't any products actually for developed for pregnancy, genuine real needs in pregnancy. 
that we were going to ask them to just smell of, you know, chips. <laughs> so um, that was why we developed the perineal massage oil. We thought, well, actually, if you're going to use that, if you need that as a lubricant, and it's lubricating the skin on the outside, and your perineum is that piece of skin between your the vagina um, and then the anus. So it's that skin that needs lubricated as you're massaging. The actual vagina has folds and folds of skin, so that stretches naturally as babies appearing, but it's actually the skin on the outside and the muscle between the two that you're actually massaging to actually stretch. And mm. um, so it's just that lubricant on the outside, but we put eucalyptus oil and lavender oil in, in there because we know lavender oil is brilliant at soothing muscle pain and mm. um, great to add to a bath as well. You know, if you've given birth or you're just a bit achy and sore, some lavender oil mixed with a little bit of milk is just so relaxing and it's great for that muscle tension. So we have that in there because we know that when you're doing perineum massage, stretching that muscle, the skin of the perineum, that you do get points where it just starts to get to that discomfort stage and that's when you stop. But it's very much like, you know, when you exercise and you've got sore muscles after exercise, that um, it's just that breakdown um, of, of muscle and that lavender oil helps with that, and as does the eucalyptus as well. It smells beautiful, and that's the other thing. Oh, definitely. Any benefits <laughs> whilst you're doing it? Um, and if you've had an episiotomy, say for your first child, is it worth you doing um, the perineum massage or perineal massage the second time because of any scar tissue and things, or not really? Um. Yes, and it's almost that scarring. So you'll feel, if you've had an episiotomy, you actually feel, you'll be able to feel the scar tissue and you can massage that in between your four fingers. Well, in between your thumb and forefinger. And you can just help to break it down and soften it. Mm -hmm. What you do is, um, if you tear with your second, it's usually down that old um, scar tissue. So just mm -hmm. massage and helping to break down that scar tissue just gives it that little bit more give. That's not to say it won't tear, but it may well just minimise. Yeah, absolutely. Anything to help. Okay, so if you have, if for any reason you are going into hospital for a C-section, um, how can we prepare ourselves for that? Um, so if you've planned to have your uh, cesarean section, then... There's different things that the hospital will want you to do sometimes two, three weeks before. So things like having swabs done to check for the superbug, mm -hmm. time for the swabs to be done, to come back and to have any decolonization treatment that's needed, such as certain skin washes and things like that. So that's usually done a few weeks in advance. Um, a couple of days before, sometimes within 24 hours, you'll be asked to go into hospital um, to have some blood taken. And that's just to check blood group and, you know, just to check that your normal blood levels are within that normal level of tolerance. Um, you may also, depending on risk factors, you may see an anaesthetist beforehand um, who may talk to say you've maybe had a reaction before to um, some anaesthetic. It may be that... Um, you have had problems before, maybe with an anaesthetic. And it, it's more about the anaesthetist then being able to do that risk assessment beforehand to plan rather than finding it out, you know, five minutes beforehand. Mm. 
And then you're given some medication as well that you're asked to take the night before. And then sometimes as well in the morning of the operation. Um, different hospitals will differ on what and when you can actually have fluids. Some hospitals are happy for you to have fluid right up to 6 a.m. Some ask you to take apple juice at 6 a.m. Um, it all depends very much on that hospital trust. But what they tend to do is ask you to come in quite early on in the morning um, to a specific ward and you will be checked in. You'll have all your observations done, like blood pressure, your temperature, your pulse, that sort of thing. You'll be given lovely stockings to wear that help um, to prevent blood clots. And you'll be allocated um, a, a place on a list. And again, different hospitals have different parameters for that sometimes. Um, if you have quite a lot of risk factors for your cesarean section, it's maybe your fourth or fifth cesarean section, or you've got diabetes, then they may actually like to have you first on that list. Mm. Um, and it tends to be, you'll be last on the list if you have fewer risk factors. Even things like, you know, having your first baby, because they know that you probably don't have to rearrange childcare. Mm-hmm. But they do all those things into account when you know when they're thinking about where to place people on the list but um if they've got anyone that's high risk they tend to prioritize them first because they don't know how long the surgery goes on for it it's very relaxed i um worked as a a nurse in intensive care before i became a midwife and that for me is the difference is it's a birth a Mm. baby is about born so the atmosphere is very much a baby is about to be born Mm. it's an elective um, so it is very much, um, you know, trying to make this as special as possible. So playlists, um, you know, all that sort of things usually accommodated, and everyone's that bit more relaxed as well. Um, it's the night before, I think, that uh, you know, if you speak to women, they'll say that's the the bit that they struggle with. It's the not being able to get to sleep and that sort of thing. And um, I keep hitting the birthing still, and. Uh, um, it's a great tool to have to help you get off to sleep that night before. Mm-hmm. Just help to clear your mind and focus. And then um, during the surgery itself, just to keep you in sort of um, mindfulness, that state of mindfulness where you're you're not planning ahead or worrying ahead. You're just very much in the moment and just saying to yourself, I need to remember this because I'll not get to experience this precisely again. Yeah. Um, rather, um, rather than doing it from a, you know, one of worry or anxiety. Mm, mm, absolutely. And how does that differ? So from a hospital birth, if you're just going in for a normal, whether it be hospital, labour ward or um, birthing centre type um, arrangement, what can we do to prepare ourselves in there for that? And perhaps you could include your top tips for packing a hospital bag. Because I know I took way too much stuff. So the last time I went. <laughs> so is this for um, like a spontaneous labour? Are you going to yeah. save yourself and you have a vaginal birth? Yeah. yeah. So I think, I don't know whether it's because my um, family are sort of engineers that I have this organisation is the key. Plan ahead and be organised. So bear with me because you'll probably get halfway through and think, oh, good grief. That is <laughs> So, um, I uh, used to teach antenatal classes, and um, in them, there was a part that was very much for the birth partner, and it mm. was their checklist. Mm. And 
they would start this checklist weeks and weeks before the um, birth. And it would involve things like um, oven switched off, front door locked, um, car around to the front door, bags packed in car, all these candles blown out, back, uh, backpacks checked off, that sort of thing. And this checklist stays on the back of the door, the inside part of your door that you're going to leave out of. And the first partner would literally spend their time while their partner's in the early stages of labour, just casually going through that checklist. Because you've got maybe five, ten minutes in between a contraction to be able to sort of potter and get that done. And then the final part of that checklist really is get the bags in the car. That's the sort of final one. And you're usually doing that when um, your partner's on the phone to the hospital just talking through their contraction kind of things. So it's very much around when you're in that car, on your way to hospital, nothing needs to be a worry. Nothing needs to be a concern because you're not thinking, have I left candles on? Have I locked the front door? Have we let the neighbours know that the dog needs fed? All that sort of thing you'd have been able to plan. So that's the, the um, labour and birth checklist for the, the birth partners. And it's a really good tool for them because they've got a lot to organise. Mm. You know, you're in your bubble and you're just focusing on your contractions. You're just doing you. They've got everything else to organise. Making sure that you're hydrated, making sure that you've gone to the loo, reminding you to eat, you know, getting back filled for you, filling up birthing pools if you're having a home birth. So for them to have a checklist, it just takes that additional worry away. Mm. So then you've got hospital bags. And this comes this just comes from knowing the pitfalls of having one big massive bag full of everything that mm. no one can find easily. And um birth, you know, you feel like it's gonna take forever and then all of a sudden your baby's born and your midwife's saying, right, we just need a vest and the baby grow and a nappy. So your partner is then trying to find this quickly. <laughs> Also trying to support you still, because they're still, you know, in that moment with you. So they're, you know, they're just thinking, I'm just going to find this nappy. And, you know, and it's difficult in this massive big bag. So I would always say three bags, a bag for yourself, but like a weekend bag size. Mm -hmm. A bag for your baby, which would just be their changing bag. Mm -hmm. And your partner's bag, which will have snacks, um you know, books that might have their iPads. If you're going to have an epidural in labour, you may find that you can sleep for six or ten hours of that labour, in which case your partner may want to, you know, sleep as well. If they can't, they may actually benefit from having a book or just something to close their mind off as well. So it's just about thinking about that as well. Uh, chargers, phone chargers, everyone forgets phone chargers. Big battery packs as well that, you know, will actually, once they're fully charged, will charge your iPhone for 24 hours and um, I'm just going to take what I need for 24 hours it means that you only really need for yourself maybe 8 sanitary pads rather than a massive big pack you maybe need 4 uh, pairs of pants 2 um, pairs of pyjamas and all of a sudden there's less there that you're taking there's less to clean when you get home but leave 24 hours worth of extra on your bed. So mm -hmm. another four pairs of pants, another bra, another two pairs of pyjamas, uh, more sanitary pads. So that when you do need to have them replenished, if for any reason you stay in, 
your partner can just take the dirty ones home and come in with that pile. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's exactly what you need. Um, and, and, and take what you need for a weekend away. You know, mm-hmm. so if you wear makeup and you feel that you're comfortable in makeup, take makeup. You know, it'll take you three minutes to put on. And if that's what makes you feel comfortable, then, you know, you'll have time to do that. Equally, you know, you don't even need to bring a hairdryer if you don't want. So it's it's horses for courses, really. And then your baby's bag, eight nappies, you know. You just need enough for 24 hours. And again, you're leaving another pack out for that 24 hours. Um, the sleep suits and the body suits. Um, I mean, hospitals still like babies to wear hats. Um, usually because their skin is waterlogged and their hair is wet, especially if they've got a lot of hair. Um, and wool, if it's winter and it's cold. Um, and a blanket if you want, but the hospitals have blankets. So it's just about minimising what you're actually going to take in and, and thinking as well, you know, if your partner, if you're in labour for 24 hours, maybe not labour, but say you're being induced, then that's three meals that they'd miss out on and they mm. forget to eat. They get so absorbed in what they're doing. Um, so having sandwiches pre-made, but in the freezer, cheese, ham, whatever, um, that you can just take out and they'll look across by the time you get to the hospital. And what bottles of uh, water as well, small bottles, straws, you know, it's it's you're pouring water all over your face because of the position that you're in. Mm. So it's much have a straw, um, coconut water or energy drinks as well. Your body just needs sugar. It doesn't need carbs, carbs. It doesn't need complex carbs. Your um, your gut shuts down because it's a part of your body doesn't need to work. You know, there's a lot, a lot of stuff your body needs to do to, to give birth to your baby, and it will prioritise that. So your gut will shut down, so that it's your stomach that's having to absorb any nutrients that come in, and it can really only cope with simple sugars. So glucose sweets, funny, coconut water is brilliant, but um, isotonic and um, sports drinks as well because. Your body does need it. You know, if you run out of sugar in labour, your body starts to have to use fat stores as a way of generating energy. And it's it's, it's very inefficient. Mm. Because it's inefficient, your body just says, well, I can't accommodate as many contractions. So we'll just slow labour down to use what's available. Whereas if you keep on top of your energy levels and your simple sugars, it just keeps your labour going at the pace it's meant to go at. Oh, that's really interesting. That's really mm. interesting. I didn't take a straw for my last one, and I, I regretted it. <laughs> it's a very good tip. It does get everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. It goes literally everywhere. <laughs> um, so when you're going into the hospital, um, will you get, uh, I mean, I've personally been through it, but for those who haven't been through it, will you get one midwife assigned to you until kind of the last few moments, or how does that work? So um, if we imagine this, you're, say your first baby, and you phone um, labour wards because your contractions are coming every three minutes. They're lasting a good minute. You're struggling to talk through. You've done your antenatal classes and your midwife that's taught them has explained, you know, it's not always um, set in stone, but usually if they're lasting a minute for over an hour and every three minutes, you, you, you'll you be in labour, mm. active labour. And you get to hospital and you usually um, go into a triage area. So it's like a ward where... The midwives actually assess 
And strangely, midwives can, you know, they're, they're really, really skilled, really experienced that they know really probably from talking to you on the phone whereabouts you are in labour. And, you know, I've had midwives that have, you know, said to women, um, I'm just going to send you an ambulance because they know, usually second or third, and the women say, no, it's fine, it's fine. But by the noises that she's making, they know mm-hmm. that there's babies on it. And equally, they can see someone's, the behaviour that they display and exhibit to know, I need to get you to labour ward. I don't think I've even got time to assess you in this this room. So it's very much dependent on um, the, the midwife and, and what you're doing, whether or not you're through that normal process of you know, blood pressure and pulse and temperature. And then, the, you know, a vaginal examination will be offered as well. And you don't have to have that vaginal examination. But for a lot of women, it helps solidify where they are in labour. Oh, yeah. Because... When you're dealing with contractions and you're working your way through them and you're using different tools that you've been taught on how to cope with them, you automatically think, I don't know where I am in labour, but when they started, I was probably, you know, a centimetre. So you th- your mindset is that. Now, dealing with contractions when you are five or six centimetres dilated is very, very different. You're on the back end of it now. And it's so much easier then to think, right, my body's doing it. This is doing something rather than still thinking, I don't know where I am in that continuum now of labour. Mm-hmm. I don't know how long I have. So um, you midwife off a duty general examination and yes, five, six centimetres. So you're then um, helped around to labour wards. And usually that's where you meet the midwife that will stay with you for the rest of your labour. Mm-hmm. Um, you will have a, a, a midwife assigned to you. When labour ward, there's always fluctuations in the peaks of um, busyness. And sometimes um, the midwife that's looking after you will maybe have another um, couple. So maybe the woman has just given birth or maybe given birth a couple of hours ago. Um, so she may just have to pop out or hand over. So it's not that she'll be looking after three women at the same stage of labour, and it's unlikely that this ever happens, um, but it's just until there's someone else for you to, you know, to take over the, you know, the woman that's ready to go to postnatal ward, um, and then and then stay with you and mm. support you. Mm. Um, it was the favourite favourite part of my job was that that part of labour because as a nurse you didn't get to do that, you didn't get to do the care bit, whereas as a midwife you got to do everything. Mm-hmm. All the care all the way through, you know, catching baby at the end, um, you know, helping you into the shower and, you know, getting your bed all clean while you're in the shower and then getting your tea and toast ready. You've got to do all of that for a couple. And, you know, and it was just, it was privileged and it was, you know, amazing. And you're in this bubble as well with them because, there's, you know, it doesn't matter what's going on outside that door. Mm-hmm. You know, you're in with them. Um. So yeah, you will have yeah, you will have your own midwife. At so, that stage. so how about home birth and preparing yourself for home birth? And uh, as I mentioned before, this is something that we are fingers crossed going to do. Um, so I'm really interested to kind of know, you know, what I need to do. So um, similar in a way to planning for a hospital, but you don't really need to plan because. It, <laughs> It's 
it's that bit easier when you have babies at home because it just happens and you know and all you've got to do is call your midwife when they appear it's quite handy to have a birth box at home mm-hmm. which will have snacks and things that are there in handy you'll find that you'll have a nest area you might build it beforehand with bean bags and soft cushions you might have your birthing pool um what you might find is even though you do that you might find that you start to migrate to another room mm-hmm. it might be the bathroom it might have an ensuite that you feel really really comfy in um and at least if you've got that little birth box, just with snacks and different things, maybe a TENS machine, um, that you can take that with you. Um, I'd definitely invest in a TENS machine for mm-hmm. home. Um, water's tremendous, absolutely tremendous. So birthing pool. And at um, what point would you get the birthing pool? If you're planning on hiring one or buying one, at, at what kind of week would you have it? you probably want it from 37 weeks okay because you know most of the time babies will appear around 41 weeks but you know you would hate to be I mean I planned um from I don't know why I thought my babies would all come at 42 weeks but they never did they came at 37 weeks and 38 weeks and I really? still <laughs> yeah and even um with my son when he came at 37 weeks and I was having an elective series section and I don't know what why it crossed my mind that I would ever get to 39 or 40 weeks. I decided that what I wanted to do was um, go into labour and have a caesarean section mm-hmm. um, in labour just to, you know, to get his lungs and everything going, which happened in the end at 37 weeks. So it wasn't too much of a shock for me. But I remember thinking, gosh, if I planned everything around that date, you know, I wouldn't really have sort of prepared for this, but we haven't planned anything really. But um Yes, but yeah, so if you order your already come for sort of 37 weeks, mm-hmm. and they do tend, you tend to book them out for sort of five, six weeks anyway. Right. And there's, lot of, there's lots of birthing pool hire companies. Um, there's some really great Facebook support groups for home birth. So there's Home Birth Group uh, UK and Home Birth Support Group UK, two different pages. Um, and they will always have access to... Um, home birth supplies oh right and they sometimes well so they're they're a great source of information lots of midwives and doulas on those groups as well so again great sources of um information Mm. um but yeah i'm a massive fan of um of water for labor and birth shower just over your back Mm. um but uh yes i do love home births i have to say i have my daughter in the relaxing yeah I had my daughter in the water at the birth center last time which was just lovely so we definitely do want to get a pool um and then you just call your midwife when you think your surges are coming kind of thick and fast and then they come and yes now with your second though your mindset is almost going to go back to think right um Am I in labour? And so you've got two things that you've got going on there. You've got, if you're hitting the birth thing, you're very relaxed. So you're probably not associating that same sensation with labour. And your reference point for the the sort of intensity of the surges is the very back end of your first labour when you're Mm. very tired. Well, because they tend to be longer, they tend to take more out of you. So you're, 
your threshold um, for pain is so much lower with your first as well. So you've got a very different reference point. So with second babies, you tend to call it quite late, sometimes too late, because you just assume, oh, it's just niggles. Or you, and you're busy, so you're thinking, oh, it's it's fine, it's just backache. And then before you know it, you're on the phone to labor voice saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, but making sort of grunty noises and, you know, <laughs> midwives, midwives on the phone and they're writing down. You're sitting next to them, they're writing down, pushing and underlining it, and then they're writing down 999. And then, so then you're on the phone to the ambulance to say, I need you to send an ambulance. And you're thinking, I hope this is what the midwife means. <laughs> and I'm sending <laughs> The second babies often come faster than first then. Um, do you know, it's one of those things that there's not really been research done to look at the length of time. But we think it's the fact that you're not really you're not really measuring it. So those early stages where you've got the cramps and the backache are things that you ignore because you're busy. Mm. You're, you're, you've got another child to look after. Um, they do tend to be quicker. Certainly the pushing stage is quicker. So, you know, first baby, you might feel the urge to push. And, you know, over the next maybe hour or two, it gets stronger and stronger. And then you have that sort of reflex to push. And mm. you have to over that reflex. It's the same as that vomiting reflex. Mm powerful and you have no control over it but that doesn't come on straight away it sort of builds up and builds up with your second um it can come on straight away and it can sometimes get you by surprise and it can sometimes be overwhelming and when you talk to um women that have had um you know the second baby that's sometimes what they'll say is the first one was longer you know time to get my head around it but second baby was quick and, and it was overwhelming. And again, that's where hypnobirthing can play a great part in the pool as well because, you know, you're relaxed mm. and you feel that your contractions are actually slowing down in the pool. But in actual fact, it's just that intensity of them because the water and the buoyancy and everything has just helped to relax you so much. Mm. Mm. So, and how about protecting your perineum during birth? Is there anything we can do for that, whether it's home or in hospital? Or... Um, you would want to, in with all, at all costs, you want to avoid being on your back. Mm-hmm. If you have an epidural, so you're very, your legs are really, really dense, you can't feel them, to being on your side with someone else sort of taking that weight of your leg or a peanut ball, just takes pressure off your perineum um and being on all fours mm-hmm. so either um on all fours over a ball again that's just you're just using gravity to almost slow down the descent of the head um and you're allowing less pressure on the perineum mm-hmm. when you're on your back all that pressure is directed downwards to the perineum and it's an unnatural position to give birth in if we when we look at research and we look at how women actually instinctively give birth what do they we're just to watch them and trust as as midwives this is what we should be doing we should be trusting that women instinctively know how to give birth Mm. do know instinctively how to give birth so we trust them to do that and we just observe what they do they squat down because in their minds they're 
needing to poo. They've got that sensation that they need to poo. So they would squat down because that you you know, or go to the toilets and and that's what and that's what they do. And when we find um, you know, women giving birth accidentally at home, if it's maybe been unplanned, they tend to be on the toilet. They tend to be in the bathroom or on the toilet because that's instinctively what their body's making them do. It makes them feel that they need to, you know, open their bowels, so they'll squat down or bear down. Um, but whichever way they do it, they are in a position that allows their pelvis to be open. So when you bring your knees up towards your shoulders, what it does is it actually pulls the, the bones that you sit on, by the action of that, it's actually pulling them Right. It gives you about an extra two centimetres. You've already got an ability at the top of your pelvis and then at the front of your pelvis, but you've got these two sitting bones that actually move out the way when you squat or kneel or sit on a toilet with your feet raised. All those positions give extra room in the pelvis. And when you've got extra room in the pelvis, you've got less resistance everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then it's about your pelvic floor. So... Being on all fours, it's taking the pressure off the pelvic floor, but it's still allowing the pelvis to be open. So baby can just be born with sort of minimal pressure. Now, there's some fantastic evidence that looks at using a perineal compress, so a warm compress, and so a swab, anything that can actually hold hand-hot water, and that's applied to the perineum at that crowding stage. So um, there's um, a professor called Hannah Dahlen, and she's written prolifically, sort of prolifically on this subject. So there's really good evidence that, um, to the point that you would actually encourage women to say in the birth plan, can I have perineal compress applied as my baby's head's advancing? There's um, some research that has gone on um, called the OASI bundle, where there's different things that are done by the midwife where they've actually got hands on the perineum um, to help to protect the perineum. So some hospitals use that technique. Um, but definitely perineal, perineal massage, antenatally, mm. um, and perineal compress. Mm. It's really about what's comfortable for you. Uh, th- there will be many, many women in labour that just don't want to be touched. Mm. I-, I know, um, certainly from the women that I've cared for and supported, at that late, late stage, if they've had babies before, they don't want to be talked through things. They just want fair amount of silence and their partner just reassuring them and to know that as midwives, we're just there. We're, mm. we're just there. Um, and that we, we tend not to like being touched. Certainly, certainly around the bottom. Mm. It's, it's a difficult one. Unless someone specifically says to me, I want you to put a perineal compress in that area um it can be uncomfortable mm. so it's a, it is a difficult one it's almost that needs a lot of discussion with women antenatally about what would you like us to do so that we can really understand what it is you want and you don't want but that you understand that if we do this actually it can help reduce risk tearing the compress and things like that but it does mean touching your your perineum as you're giving birth mm. is there a is there a code word that you want to use to say get off or so it's now it's a conversation that you need to have I mean I have the luxury of being an independent midwife so I you know cared for these women all the way so we used to have those discussions because there were two-hour appointments and 
you know, you just knew them inside out that I didn't, they didn't need to talk to me. I just knew what they needed and what they didn't mm-hmm. want and things. So, yeah, but definitely perineal compress and perineal massage and then having that conversation you know, with the midwife if they are using a hands-on technique or that specific technique um, so that you understand what might happen. Mm-hmm. In 2018, when I started the podcast, one of the first things I was kindly sent was an all-in-one kit from Cheeky Wipes, and we have used and purchased more ever since. Cheeky Wipes make washable, reusable baby wipes, makeup removal pads, reusable period protection, and more. As you know, with Amandine, we really have tried to do our part, using cloth nappies for a big chunk of time and reusable wipes. We use cheeky wipes for bum, hands and face, white cotton terry cloths for bum and coloured microfiber cloths for hands and face after every meal. The all-in-one kit has everything you need whether you are using cloth or disposable nappies. The wipes are great for sensitive skin using just water and a few drops of essential oil. You know exactly what you are using on your little one's delicate skin. The kit is so easy to set up, use and wash. We literally pop them in the wash bag and into the washing machine. We honestly find they clean a pooey bum much better than disposable wet wipes. You can find the all-in-one kit and their full range of products at cheekywipes.com and you can do your part for the environment and your wallet, saving over £500 over two years by switching to reusable wipes and nothing is being added to landfill. Right, let's get on to these listener questions. So, first one that we have is, how is COVID-19 affecting the choices that labouring mums have? I realise that each hospital may differ a little, but, for instance, is gas and air allowed? Are water births allowed? I think that's a great question, and so much anxiety has been around this, hasn't it? Yeah. So, um, what what COVID-19 has done, it's placed immense pressure on uh, midwives and obstetricians because the sickness rates are much, much higher in staff. And they've only got a finite resource of of those staff as well. So we have less midwives that are actually able to work. And those that are working are tired because Mm. they're doing shifts. Um, Gas and air is still available. Water births, it will depend. What um, a lot of hospitals have to do is have a COVID-19 safe area. So a ward where women that are actually positive can labour so that they're not risking infecting women that aren't. And what tends to happen is the midwife-led units that have the pools tend to be the smaller units. They tend to be three, four beds rather than 10 beds in the consultant unit. So they tend to be made into the COVID-19 wards, which will then limit availability of pools. Um, Some hospitals are, you know, almost like Apollo 13 the whole situation and hiring, you know, the sort of inflatable birthing pools and setting up um, the consultant-led units in that mm. way. So they're being really, really innovative um, in helping women achieve that, that, you know, that birth that they really, really still do want. Mm. Um, I know that there's um, some um, local groups that are actually fundraising to buy the hospitals, these birthing pools. They don't have, they really don't have the resources either to buy them so they're being bought so that oh. they 
used um, by women. So lots of amazing things that the communities are doing to get together to help, you know, to help the hospitals achieve that for women because they want women to have the birth of their dreams. Well, they want them to have the birth that they want, but equally they've got to work within the confines of safety from women from the virus, safety of staff and the rest of the team from that virus. And and also in, when they're in their PPE, it's exhausting. Yeah, I bet. It's like, like, exhausting and they feel sick. And yeah, it's it's just, it's a, it's a terrible thing for everyone at the minute. Um, but I have to say, you know, it, it's... I'm really, really proud as a midwife what the midwives in the NHS are actually doing, the the sacrifices that they themselves personally make that to really help make something of that little bit better for the women. And it's it's something that you don't see because we're all we're great at criticizing, aren't we? As a nation, we're brilliant at criticizing oh, yes. what don't do. But sometimes we forget to look at those sacrifices that those midwives, you know, that they're making to, you know to help so gas and air is available um but water bursts may not be but it's certainly worthwhile approaching your hospital and seeing if they would benefit maybe form some fundraising mm-hmm. and to help get them a pool so that they've got one available that can be moved around different rooms and that's the beauty of them they can just be um, emptied new liner so yeah so if anyone at their fancies um, fundraising, yeah, at the, the hospital, the, the labour wards will be yeah very happy to to have that. Absolutely. Um, I had a traumatic first birth. Are second births genuinely better, or should I be prepping for forceps again? Um, no, you're much much less forceps this. Um, we know from um, research that with your first baby, um, an epidural doubles your chances of needing forceps. So it takes it from, say, 7 8% to 16%, whereas it makes no difference with second babies. Right. Um, and the other thing to remember is forceps are, they, they sort of cage baby's head this, so that they're actually protecting baby's head. And they are the ones, it's the actual, the forceps themselves that are actually making space around the perineum as baby comes out. So your perineum is still being stretched, which is great. You'll have had an episiotomy, so do try that uh, massage between the um, thumb and forefinger to break down that um, scar tissue. But yes, it's, it's much, much less chance that you would have a forceps again this time. And but, you know, being upright and mobile and also being on your left side, if you are resting or if you do have an edge, be on your left side. That peanut ball, which is just shaped like a peanut, that are still in their shells. Between your knees or a couple of pillows when you're on your side just helps keep your pelvis open and allows the baby to come down in a nice position. Is there any way to avoid a second baby being breech if the first one was? Um... No, there's different reasons that babies are breech. Most of the time, it's because of the shape of the uterus. Right. And so you do tend to find if one was breech. You can have, yeah, yeah. But there's um, things like um, external cephalic version that's done around 37 weeks. So you would normally see your midwife at their six weeks. They'd suspect that baby was breech. 
refer you for a scan, they would either confirm and then you would see either a midwife or an obstetrician who would discuss what the options would be. And they tend to be an external catalytic version where they try and turn baby. So they've got their hands in your abdomen on the outside and they actually manipulate baby to turn. Um, an electrocesarian infection or an elective vaginal Greek birth. And there's lots of different aspects of, you know, gestation, the amount of fluid around baby, and the position that baby's actually in in that breech position, um, like what type of breech will determine what options they would actually attach risk factors to. Because, you know, if it's your third baby and you've had two previous vaginal breech births before and, you know, you're coming in labouring at 38 weeks, then, you know, and you're in advanced labour, then the chances are the discussion would be around actually it's probably safer carry on the vaginal breech birth even if you have maybe plans for an elective cesarean section so it's very much about on the day as well what's yeah. actually happening um but, but clinicians now midwives and obstetricians now are, are actually very skilled at um breech births and mm-hmm. um, it's not the same as it was 10 15 years ago where we were a little bit more hesitant about them mm-hmm. Would it be possible to use a birthing pool for a VBAC? Uh, yes, absolutely. What you would probably want to do would be to um, set up a meeting with the consultant midwife just to, to go through that, to go through the options, just so that they're aware on labour wards that that's what your intentions are. Um, the biggest reason that they prefer not to is monitoring, that continuous uh, heart monitoring for baby. Um but they can do that um, remotely. They're, they can. It's called telemetry, where you're not wired, so you can still use that in the pool. Um, and you know, you don't have to have that monitoring either. That's the other thing. Everything is a choice. We present you with the information. We present you with the benefits and the risks of everything, and then you make that decision. And we support you in that decision. It's and it's a partnership in that way. Um, so the consultant midwife would be able to go through the benefits of everything, the risks of everything, and then together you make a plan and um, and that should be respected. Mm. You can't, oh, the birthing pools aren't always available. That's the only thing. If they only have one and someone's already using it, that's when it's sometimes good to have that sort of plan B. Yes. Yeah, Absolutely. Pros and cons of an epidural. I live abroad and epidural is standard here, but I felt out of control with my first. Um, so, so the pros of an epidural, which probably don't ever really get talked about. Um, so it's the only form of pain relief for labour and birth that will give you the complete obliteration of pain. So if you're someone that does not want to have, if that's what you're fearful of for labour, then that's what an epidural can offer you. And nine times out of ten, it will. Sometimes it can be patchy, so it'll work on bits and not others. And sometimes it will just feel as if it's not quite strong enough. But the anaesthetist can give you more medication to help you get to a point you're comfortable. The more of those top-ups you get, though, the heavier and heavier and heavier legs feel. And there's the risk then that you can't move. And again... Um, it just sometimes gives you that uh, that time that you need just to sleep. Their decision making 
can be affected because they're so tired. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, to say to someone, you know, if they're asking for an elective cesarean section because they just want it over with, to be able to offer them that option of epidural and then be pain-free and then maybe have a couple of hours sleep and then have a thing, is that still what you want to do? It's, you know, looking at it in that context. Uh, the cons are you're more likely to have a, a forceps if it's your first baby. Mm-hmm. You're not at any higher risk of needing a cesarean section. Um, for one out of ten women, it doesn't work and will maybe sometimes have to be recited. And then for about one in 50 women, they get a banging headache um, because um, there's a little hole being made and that's the covering of the cerebrospinal fluid. So that takes sometimes weeks to resolve they can do something called the blood to cover it over and that will sometimes help but um you know it's it is rare but um it's still a risk and and you can't move you know if you've got a really dense epidural you can't move um but you will have a midwife with you and you will be able to be helped to be moved but you know for the most part when women have an epidural it's sighted quickly and easily you know the anesthetists are very skilled at them and, you know, they're able to move their legs and shuffle about in the bed. They do need help to empty their bladder, which necessitates a catheter either to be popped in, drained, and then the catheter taken back out, or the catheter be placed and then left in. Um, so, yes, that's something that antenatal classes go through, though. Mm. Not all antenatal classes. Certainly, if a midwife is teaching you your antenatal classes, they will go through um, that information about an epidural and what it involves. Mm. Is it worth taking baby aspirin when trying to conceive? Um, Not unless you fall into the group of women that would benefit. So if you've had recurrent miscarriages and you have a certain um, uh, disorder that we know can contribute to recurrent miscarriage, then yes, but not as a routine, not Mm -hmm. as a routine okay uh is second labor quicker i think we've probably covered this but is second labor quicker my first was two hours then yes probably a good idea to touch your midwife about home birth (laughs) (laughs) yeah oh yes that is quick that's quick quite uncomfortably quick i imagine um best position for delivery with prolapse I'm, I'm assuming a, um, like a vaginal prolapse rather than a cord prolapse. Then, I'm yeah. guessing so. Um, all fours probably, all fours. or um, left side, lying down left side. It's going to depend how uncomfortable they are, um, and it will be very much guided by the, the midwife. Mm-hmm. But the prolapse is, uh, how uncomfortable it is. Um, so, yes, I would be very much guided by new midwife on that one okay is it true that it's unlikely you can have an epidural with your second baby i think with the epidural they take about 40 minutes to be actually sighted so by the time the anesthetist has gone through the risks and got you all prepped got the anesthetic in and got the anesthetic working it can be 40 minutes and that's if they're available straight away um it may well be that in that time you're ready to actually have a baby. Mm. So what they're doing is the the option that you've got is to think, 
am I willing to take the risks of, you know, that headache, the dual tap headache, um, the fact that it might lengthen my labour because I'm not as mobile uh, and that I might not be able to move my legs and I'm probably going to be in hospital a little bit longer as well after I've had my baby if I want to go home um, versus the fact that I might have a baby in 20 minutes. So, um, anaesthetists very much um, will go through the risks and, you know, the midwife may well say, look, it's, it looks it's quite likely that you're going to have this baby quickly. But if you're still really, really insistent that you want to have your epidural, um, then, you know, providing you aren't actually pushing the baby's not actually on the verge of being born, the anaesthetist will still come and speak to you. They still have a duty of care to make sure that they do no harm. And, and you know, if they feel that actually you're going to get no benefit from this epidural and that the midwife has said, they will have no benefit from this epidural. It's not ethical for them to do it. But, you know, usually the state, the reason they ask is because they're in that transition stage. Mm-hmm. And it's usually quite rapidly after that that baby's born. Mm-hmm. And as midwives, we, we, we kind of know that and we'll, you know, talk them through it. But again, if they've done antenatal classes, they tend to know about transition. And, and sometimes all it takes for their partner to say to them, just remember, remember your midwife had said to you in the classes, this is transition it's not going to be long now. Let's just get through it. Let's just breathe. Come on, let's get through the next 15 minutes. I'll talk you through it. That that's sometimes enough. Okay. Uh, the second baby and you're requesting an epidural. Yeah, then mm. it's your request. Mm. Is it ever possible to have a home birth VBAC? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Again, um, the midwife, um, will refer you to what's called the VBAC clinic where you'll probably see a consultant midwife and they will talk you through the um, the risks of uh, vaginal birth at home after cesarean um, but they'll also talk you through the risks of a vaginal birth in hospital and they'll also talk you through the risks of a repeat cesarean section so they should go through the risks and benefits of everything not just yeah. the home um, but they will go through that Um and quite a lot actually on that checklist um but yes if that's what your choice is and um, you would be supported in that are there any differences in care if giving birth age 35 plus it would be my second baby um you it depends which hospital that you book at. sometimes they offer more scans sometimes they offer more appointments it they they changed it now in most hospitals to over 40 and mm-hmm. in some over 40 with your first so no if you're fit and healthy otherwise no right uh, how common is it to deliver vaginally after having a c-section with my first baby i mean we've answered this mostly but so depending on the reason that you had your cesarean section so if you had an elective cesarean section because you're baby was breached first time around then you've got a really high chance you know you're, you're up sort of nearly 80 percent success rate sometimes even higher so um if you had a cesarean section because you labored for three days and your cervix got to fully dilated and the baby would not come out then you have a lower chance of a successful um be back but it's still around about the same as um, any first-time mum. So it's, you know, it's all about um, 
having that personalised care and having that appointment with the consultant midwife in the VBAC clinic to go through your own personal circumstances and your previous births and they'll be able to give you a, a better indication. But, you know, it's high percentages of success. That's yeah. vaginal birth. That's not a lot of birth. That can include also forceps and, and you know, like the suction cup and things like that as well. But it's, it's a vaginal birth. Yes. Um, a second C-section, a good idea or more risky than attempting a VBAC? And I know it's probably best they talk to their consultant, isn't it, on this one? Because it depends. It depends why you have the cesarean section yeah. first time. Um, it depends on where the baby is. It depends mm-hmm. where the baby is. So there will be different clinical indicators that will determine what those risks are and what have to be discussed. So, you know, if you've got a low line placenta and it's attached at the front and it's low and it could be over the scar, then that's a very different conversation about mode of, you know, mode of birth than if you had a, a breech birth, mm. a breech um, abdominal birth versus um, having another cesarean section again. Like, you know, it may well be that the risk factors are actually higher for the cesarean section mm. rather than the vaginal birth this time. Mm. There's a scenario where actually it would be a, a, a bit riskier to have a vaginal birth when you've got a placenta in the way, very risky. Mm, absolutely. Um, I well, Literally, last two questions. I had pain down there until six months postpartum, saw a pelvic floor physio, but never discovered the cause, and I'm wondering if it could be from pushing when the baby wasn't in the right position. So um, pelvic floor pain is um, usually, well, it'll be muscular. Go back to your GP and ask to be referred into um, urogyne, so urogynecology. Because they can start to look at, they can do both the different um, scans and things to look to see whether or not there was a tear that might be undiagnosed. Um, and, and sometimes they can't find anything and it just resolves on its own. But um, urogyne is a specialty that you probably want to be referred into. Brilliant. Last question. Are elective C-sections at 40 weeks or 38 weeks, assuming everything is good with mum and baby? So um, we know from lots of research that the earlier we do cesarean sections, the less mature babies' lungs are, and babies need that stress of labour to help them prepare their lungs for breathing outside. So when we used to do cesarean sections at 38 weeks, what we found was we had quite a few babies going off to special care because of breathing problems. And then after about four or six hours, they would come back once they stabilised. When we do them at 39 weeks, of the cesarean sections, there's fewer babies have that. And the closer we get to 40 weeks, even less still. The problem that you got when you push to 40 weeks is there's more chance that women go into labour. Yes, so the sleep tends to be 39, 40 weeks. Mm-hmm. So the closer you get to 40 weeks, the, far, you know, the less the likelihood is your baby will have struggles with breathing, but the higher the chance of um, going into labour mm-hmm. beforehand. But again you'd be top of the list for your cesarean section if that's still what you wanted to do. Um, But the majority of women won't go into labour until 41 weeks. So when you look at that sort of bell curve of when women labour, that top of that bell curve is sort of of 41 weeks, and then your outliers tend to be your 43 weeks and your 34 weeks and 
37 and 40 to 43 tend to be at the bottom of that bell curve. Right, right. See why we're gradually pushing towards 40 weeks. Yeah. We want to chance that maybe we'd need to go to special care. Yes, absolutely. Leslie, thank you. <laughs> thank you well, so much for giving me so much more of your time than you said you had to answer everybody's questions and to give us such a knowledgeable podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I really appreciate it. And I know that listeners will be listening and have so much information now. So thank you so much. That's your absolute pleasure. And we've, we've got loads of information on our uh, website with our blogs, all written by our amazing midwives. Um, on the team at Myersport Midwife. So, yes. Well, I will share those um, blogs and I will share the website over on the show notes. So if anyone wants to go and follow up with what Leslie's been saying, then they can go over there and have a look. Well, thank you so much. Thank you to Cheeky Wipes and thank you to those at Nourish for being a part of today's podcast. I will catch up with you all next week. Have a lovely rest of your week. Lots of love. If you have a moment, please do go onto iTunes or Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Leave a review um, and give it a little rate. It really helps to just bump this new series up into the charts and help other mums find the series so they can be supported by our wonderful community. Lots and lots of love. See you next week. Bye.